wouldn't it be great to eat and drink and hang out in the presence of Jesus? Wouldn't that be the best thing in the world? I mean, we sometimes miss it in English, but as you're reading about Jesus, you would know if you paid close attention that he had this witty repartee about him. He had a way of using his quick wit and his art of exaggeration to really bring people into his stories. He was a great storyteller. He would have been the life at any party. Wouldn't it be great to eat and drink and hang out with Jesus? I mean, think about that day when they were having a Bible study conference with over 5,000 people, all on a grassy hillside, keeping their social distancing, I'm sure. And they're hearing the teacher go on, the keynote speaker, and the conference coordinators realize, darn, we forgot the food. They're hungry and we forgot the evening meal. So the keynote speaker steps down from the pulpit. He takes some fishes, two little fishes from a little boy, blesses them and transforms them in such a way that there is sushi for the multitudes. Over 5,000 people were fed. And if that wasn't enough, he took some crumpled up bread from the boy's little pocket and he takes it and blesses it and breaks it and transforms it into enough fine, great-smelling, crunchy, crispy French baguettes for more than 5,000 people to feast on with 12 baskets left over for an evening midnight snack. They must have had some teenagers in the office that day. Or how about the time when Jesus was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee? Remember that? Young poor couple could barely get some wine out to everybody and then it runs out. And very embarrassing situation. I'm sure they must have had all their sorority sisters and brothers there. All the wine is gone and they're embarrassed. And they come to Jesus. Jesus takes the, the clear water for purification, blesses it, transforms it into wine and nobody's cup runs out that day. It was a great feast. But not only that, it was the finest wine. It was Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, A.D. Vintage 30. Wouldn't it be great to eat and drink and spend time in the presence of Jesus? Today we're going to look at two characters who did just that. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Luke chapter 24. 13 to 35. And I want you to do something else. I want you to put your hiking boots on. I want you to put your running shoes on. Because I want you to be in the shoes of these two disciples this morning. Three, two days after the crucifixion. Seven mile journey from the place of the crucifixion in Jerusalem to a little tiny village called Emmaus. They're returning home after the crucifixion of Jesus. So let's go with them. Who are these walking partners? That's the first question. Look at verse 13. Luke tells us that it was two disciples going to the village of Emmaus. Not enough information. So let's probe it a little bit deeper. Look at verse 18. It says that one of these disciples was named Cleopas. Now that's a good piece of information. Because if you couple that with John chapter 19 and verse 25... What you see is a picture 
of those who are at the crucifixion of Jesus. And what does John tell us? Interestingly enough, he said, standing behind the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So at the crucifixion, we got Mama Mary, we got Aunt Mary, and we got Mary Magdalene. The wife, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now we think that probably that's a variant of Cleopas. So who is walking on that journey from the cross to the village of Emmaus? It's Aunt Mary and Uncle Cleopas. They had just seen their nephew, their kinsman, killed. They are blood relatives. They have seen Jesus grow up from a little boy into the Messiah. They loved him personally and intimately. And they're naturally devastated to see their nephew die a horrendous, torturous death, humiliated on the cross, executed before the crowds. They had seen this terrible event, and now they're walking home. Walk in their shoes today. They walked. In verse 17b it says, And they stood still, looking sad. Of course they were. They lost their nephew. The Greek word is they were somber, or downcast, or gloomy. But whatever you want to say, they're on the verge of depression at this point. They had seen their nephew die a horrible death. But the second thing that they had seen was their dreams for Israel destroyed on the hardwood of the cross. Look at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem all of Israel. You see, Jesus was more than a nephew to Mary and Cleopas. They had become his disciples. They had invested in this mission that Jesus was here to save. They had trusted that he was the one to save them. They had probably prayerfully and even financially given to the mission of Jesus. And they were devastated because that mission broke apart on the hardwood of the cross. And they were walking that seven-mile journey back home to Emmaus. So that's the shoes we're in today. I want to make three brief, brief points about this. God always comes to us in the midst of our grief and suffering with love and comfort. God always comes with love and comfort. Second point. We don't always recognize God in our midst, especially in our grief and trouble. Thirdly, we need eyes of faith in order to see God's working around us. So God always comes. We don't recognize oftentimes, so we need the eyes of faith. First point, God always comes. Who is it that initiates the account, encounter in the gospel this morning? It's Jesus. Jesus. Look at verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, that means all the troubling things that had happened in Jerusalem, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. They were discussing the things that made their hearts sad. But before they can utter a single word to this stranger, Jesus knows their pain. Jesus knows their suffering. Jesus knows their sadness. Jesus knows their devastation. And it is Jesus who initiates the encounter with them. Isn't Jesus Emmanuel? Doesn't that mean God with us, particularly when we suffer and are in trouble? Please hear this, folks. If you're going through a difficult time of crisis or suffering today, 
Jesus has knowledge of your suffering, of all the sufferings of all of his followers, and comes to deal tenderly and personally with each of us. The psalmist in Psalm 139 describes God in this way. I love it. Lord, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. And get this, you are familiar with all my ways. Jesus came to them. He knew their pain. He knew all their ways. And he initiates the encounter. Secondly, we don't always recognize Jesus in the midst of our troubles. Look at verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus on the road that day. Now what does that mean? Some scholars have said, well, that was a divine sense of God falling, having scales before their eyes in such a way that they couldn't recognize Jesus. Baloney. That's not what was happening there. No siree. God is not playing some trick on them. He's not a, it's not a divine masquerade party where he's hiding the identity from those two disciples who were sad and afraid. No. The uh, interpretation is this. Jesus now walked in a glorified body. He walked in his resurrection body. And it was similar to what he had on this earth, but it was transformed in glory. I mean, think about the other times we meet Jesus. Father John preached last week about doubting Thomas. Thomas is in the room eight days later with the risen Lord. And what does he say? I will not believe until I put my finger in your nail scars and put my arm within your spear scar in your chest. Seeing was not believing because he was different. A little bit later in this same gospel, chapter 24, Jesus will appear to some other disciples and he'll have to convince them, guys, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. I'm not a ghost. Don't believe me. Give me a piece of that broiled fish over there and I'm going to eat it before you. He demonstrates his new resurrection body. But see, here's the deal. Not only did they have the physical limitations that would not allow them to see who Jesus truly was, they had a spiritual limitation. They could not recognize Jesus because they did not have the eyes of saving faith as of yet with which properly to see. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, what things are troubling you? What are y'all talking about? And they said to Jesus, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty prophet in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. You say, that's what's making them sad today. But actually, that is the mission of Jesus. They should have been quite happy that he died for sin. They recited the mission statement, the prime directive. That was the critical mission of Jesus. And it had gone right over their heads, right over their heads. They were Bible believers, Aunt Mary and Uncle Cleopas. They had the law and the prophets. They had the book of Scripture, but they had never seen the cross. They had never seen with eyes of faith. When that animal was slain in Genesis chapter 3 and it became a covering for the guilt of Adam and Eve, they didn't realize that that was pointing to Jesus. They had never seen with eyes of faith that in Exodus, 
when a lamb was sacrificed for sin and covered the lintel, the doorposts of their homes, so that the angel of death would pass over. That was pointing to Jesus. They didn't see with eyes of faith that every lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the blood atonement of sin was all pointing to Jesus. They had not seen in Isaiah 53 that when the suffering servant comes into the world, that that is Jesus suffering for our sins. Isn't it remarkable that you can have the Bible, have the Word of God, and never truly understand it? You see, only saving faith opens the eyes of the blind and unstops the ears of the deaf. Only saving faith. But yet they didn't have that. They didn't recognize Jesus. So point number three, the last point. We need eyes of faith, saving faith, just like they had. And here's the deal. Saving faith is a combination of two things, biblically and scripturally. It is objective knowledge of the Savior and subjective knowledge of the Savior. It is both an intellectual endeavor and a personal meeting with the Savior. It requires both the head and the heart to be engaged with Jesus. You cannot be saved. You cannot be a Christian unless you engage both your head and your heart. I mean, think about hiring somebody for a business. I mean, you, you go through all these resumes. You connect all the data points. You look at all their past work experiences, how long they had tenure at each employment. You look at their qualifications, where they had worked before, and you get an intellectual knowledge. This person looked really good on paper. But remember, it's not until six, eight, 12 months after you've hired them, when you've walked with them, when you've gotten to know them, when you've worked through crucial, critical problems together in the business life, that you can actually say, I made the right choice. It takes both an intellectual commitment and a spiritual, a rational and a personal to have saving faith. Jesus knew that. In fact, look at verse 25. He actually criticizes and chastises Aunt Mary and Uncle Cleopas. He said to them, O foolish ones, slow in heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's Jesus' way of saying, bless your little hearts. Bless your little hearts. Now, if you ain't from around here, please know that if a southerner comes up to you and says, bless your little hearts, they're neither blessing you nor complimenting you. Uh, you need to just be quiet and step away. Uh, that is not a compliment. And, and we know that Jesus was from the south. He spoke southern Aramaic because the Bible says that he came from the southern kingdom of Judah, right? Bless your little hearts, you foolish people, slow to believe. Jesus rebukes them. Because what he's saying is this was God's plan all along, that I suffer and die for sin and on the third day be raised. Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you which is of first importance, which is what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. First importance, died for our sins, accordance with Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So let's see what Jesus does to bring the Scriptures alive. Look at verse 27. Two things he does. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to Cleopas and Mary all the things of Scripture that were concerning himself. 
See what Jesus is doing? He's saying the whole book, the whole Bible, from start to finish is about me. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning of Scripture and I'm the end of Scripture. I'm the author of Scripture. I'm the author of salvation. Think about it. How awesome would it be to hang out with Jesus and allow Him, the author of Scripture, to teach you in your hearts? In that Bible study, their eyes began to see with eyes of faith. Look at verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? The great Anglican bishop and theologian N.T. Wright said this, Only when we see the Old Testament as reaching its natural climax in Jesus will we have understood it. And... When we grasp this, we, like Cleopas and Mary, will find our hearts burning within us. All right, step number one. They've got the intellectual side down. But how does Jesus reach their heart? Step number two, through the Holy Communion. Look at verses 29 and 30. But they urged Jesus strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. Verse 30. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. Think of that. There was a book called The Shape of the Liturgy, one of the greatest liturgical books ever written by a guy named Dom Gregory Dix. And in that, he said that the Eucharist of God at the table of God requires that Christ be the celebrant every Sunday and that there be a fourfold action of the Eucharist. You take the bread bless it, break it, and you give it. Whenever two or three are gathered together in faith in Christ's name, he is truly present in that action. That's what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you know that word anamnesis we use for remembrance? is the base root word for amnesia. But anamnesis means the opposite of amnesia. Rather than forgetting that which is highly important, it means to remember that which is highly important. Do this in remembrance of me. A deep, rich, powerful, heartfelt understanding of the personal relationship we have with Christ Jesus. St. Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, verse 26. For as oft as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes again. You're remembering the Lord's death in your hearts. So what happened to our hiking partners today? Finally, they have both a head knowledge of Jesus through the Scriptures and a heart knowledge of Jesus through the Lord's Supper. And they went back and they told the other disciples in verse 35 that... They had known Jesus in the breaking of the bread. So wouldn't it be great to eat with Jesus today? He's here. He's present. He's at this altar. His very presence is here when two or three are gathered for this Eucharistic feast. Really and wonderfully, Anglicans believe that he is here. Wouldn't it be great to do Bible study with Jesus today? To have him go over the prophets and the law and reveal to us what we need to learn Jesus said, I've sent him my spirit into your hearts to reveal truth to you. 
John 14, 26. Jesus said to them, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. I love being an Anglican. I really do. Every week we get to walk the journey of the walk to Emmaus as we hear Jesus' teaching from the Holy Scripture, empowered by the Spirit of God. Then we get to come to His altar and receive His Holy Sacrament. He meets us both in the head and in the heart. N.T. Wright said this, Take away the Scripture and the sacrament becomes a piece of magic. Take away the sacrament and the Scripture becomes an intellectual and emotional exercise, detached from real life. But when you put them together, you have the entirety of Christian living. For six weeks, we've not been able to enjoy the sacrament of Christ with us. May we this day be blessed by hearing the Word of God and receiving His holy sacrament from the altar. And may our hearts burn within us. And may we like Aunt Mary and Uncle Cleopas, recognize the living Lord in our midst. Through the glory of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.